Well, good morning. Welcome to Bethany. Glad that you are here with us. I had a senior moment there at the end of our Boy Scout observance because I had Bibles up front. We had five Eagle Scouts this year, and three of them were here this morning, including a brother-sister combo, uh, the girl, the first Eagle Scout girl in our new girls troop, and so that was quite an accomplishment, and I remembered it in the first service, and in the second service, I just started passing the offering plates, and so those kids came up afterward and said, "Uh, can we take the Bibles now? Yes, and so we acknowledged them, and and I apologize for dropping the ball uh, there in that second hour as we worked through Uh, We are continuing our study in the book of Philippians, and I was reminded of an event some 30 years ago. Upon graduating from Western Baptist College, uh, now Corbin University, um, a lifetime ago, my wife and I, as a young married couple, went to Nampa, Idaho, where I served on staff at Berean Baptist Church with Pastor Don Mogford, who's now retired and a member here, and that's kind of a joy for me. And I have kept all of those years, probably this is the only Sunday bulletin from that era, June 27th, 1993, the date on the front, the, the preacher in the morning was youth pastor Tim Baker, and they, they, type, they, they use the typewriter to type out my outline, and I look at that. I didn't take any notes on myself, and I have no remembrance of what I might have said that day. But in those days, in that church, we had a Sunday evening service. How many of you remember the Sunday evening service, right? It's kind of fallen on hard times in the modern era, but for so long, we did that. And that night, there was a young layman, a single guy in our church who was a surveyor by occupation and a mathematician by training, a very interesting guy. And Don said, hey, Jim, would you like to preach on Sunday night? And Jim said, okay. And it was such an interesting message because his message for the night was a book report on the book that I hold in my hand. The book was titled Borden of Yale. Have any of you ever heard of this book? It's kind of a a nondescript one, but Jim's book report that Sunday night was so riveting, I filled up the bulletin with notes on what Jim said, and in my mind I thought, one day I'll have to share that story, and today's the day, amen. It finally came. In fact, at a later time, I was able to secure this book, uh, formerly resided in the stacks at Western Baptist College. And they purged it, and I think Richard Muntz let me know, and, and I was able to glean some books, and I said, I want that one. The story, the Borden of Yale is the biography of a young man whose name was William Borden. He was born in 1887 in Chicago to the Borden Dairy Company family. How many of you remember Borden Milk or Borden Butter? They had a mascot back in the day, Elsie the Cow. Do you remember her? And in the early 1900s, the Borden family was known across the country, multimillionaires, tycoons in business. And William Borden was born into that family. 
Sometime in Borden's childhood, his mother took spiritual interest and found her way to Moody Church in Chicago, where she sat under the ministry of R.A. Torrey and gave her heart to Christ. Her young son attended with her, and William Borden, as a young teenager, put his faith in Christ and began to follow Christ. Upon graduation at a very young age, 16, uh, he was given a round-the-world voyage as his graduation gift with a companion, an adult. And, and you have to picture, how did they do round-the-world voyages back then? It was by steamship. And he would travel probably over a year in time, I didn't get that detail for sure, visiting all the countries of the world. Young William's companion was a reverend who took him. And when he was on that trip visiting the various countries of the world and seeing different peoples and populaces, God spoke to that young man's heart and he said, I will be a missionary with my life. He ended up returning from that trip and enrolling in Yale University. At a day and an age when Yale was a very conservative uh, Christian school and graduated from there in 1909. During his four years at Yale, Borden was noted by the faculty as having the greatest impact that any of them had ever seen in a student. There was something about him that stood out from the time he stepped on campus. People thought, this guy's different. He was handsome, he was wealthy, but he had a love for Christ that was contagious. And he saw his time at Yale as an opportunity for him to cultivate in his own life preparation for what God would do. He was a young man of prayer and organized immediately at Yale University prayer meetings that began to spread and multiply on campus until the whole campus was devoting itself to seasons of prayer multiple times a week. In his junior year, he recruited three other students and they determined to have a, to divide the student body up into presbyteries and each of those four students took on 75 other male classmates whom they were going to spiritually oversee and pour into for the remainder of their time in college. They took a, a little journey. Uh, Yale was in, I think, New Haven, Connecticut. They went to the downtown area and saw destitution and damage that society had had. And young William thought, there's something, something we can do here. And out of his own pocket, he rented a little abode in the downtown section and started the Yale Hope Mission before graduating, he purchased that building and staffed it with, a, with a professionals to oversee a mission, much like Union Gospel Mission in our town, to reach the lost and broken. Upon completing his studies at Yale, he sensed a need for more preparation, and so he went to Princeton Theological Seminary, studying in a great era there under J. Gresham Machen for three years, preparing himself for global work. Upon graduating from Princeton, he was ordained to the gospel ministry by Moody Church in Chicago, and he joined the China Inland Mission. Borden's vision was to carry the gospel to 10 million Muslims in China who had no gospel witness. 
he boarded a, a sailing vessel and headed for Cairo, Egypt to learn the Arabic language so that he could share the gospel with those 10 million Muslims in China. Arriving in Cairo in uh, 1912, the month of December, three months later, two months later in February, Bill Borden got sick and a few weeks later in April died of spinal meningitis. And the newspaper headings in the United States were epic. Young millionaire gives it all up. One newspaper article said, what a waste. The epic inheritor of the Borden millions gave his life away preparing to serve, but never even stepped foot on the field. Among the things that Borden left behind was a will. He left a million dollars. This was 1912. Left a million dollars to Moody Church and to the China Inland Mission and other missionary enterprises of his day. The only other thing he left was his Bible, which was given to his parents. And inside the flyleaf of that Bible were these things written. First line said this, two words, no reserves. And with a date beside that, he wrote the date that he made the decision not to take up the family business, but instead to be a missionary. Second uh, inscription in that Bible were these words, no retreats, which he wrote during the era of his studies and preparations. And finally, days before his death were these words, no regrets. Just think about that. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. The world does not know what to do with a story like that. But as I was reading this week in our study in Philippians, I was reminded of that because in Philippians 2, we have seen how Paul has been challenging the believers in Philippi to live their lives on a pathway that's marked by humble, obedient service to God. And Paul has held out before these Philippians a number of examples. He said to them, your example in a humble life of service is none other than Jesus. Jesus, who left the Father's throne in heaven and took on the very form of a servant and died a cruel death on a cross. Jesus is that example of a life of humble, obedient service. Paul after that, will include himself as an example. He said, my life is poured out on the offering of your lives, on the altar of God, a, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then Paul will conclude chapter 2 by holding out two human examples that the Philippians knew well. The first was Timothy, whom we looked at last week. And today, as we conclude chapter 2, we're going to see a second human example of what a good and faithful servant looks like. It is a young man named Epaphroditus. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. Epaphroditus 
was from Philippi. He was a member of the church there. In all likelihood, he was a leader in that church. And he had been sent by the believers in Philippi to carry an offering that was received by that church to Paul 800 miles away in Rome. The purpose of that offering was to provide for Paul's needs because Paul is a prisoner of the Roman government, but Roman incarceration did not include Roman provisions. Therefore, if you were in prison in Rome in those days, your family and friends were called on to meet your needs, to provide for your rent. Paul was under house arrest while he waits there. There was rent to be paid. There was food and clothing that were his needs. Medical care should someone become sick. All of those expenses fell on family or friends of the one incarcerated. The church in Philippi knew Paul had great needs. They took an offering and they said, we need to get this offering to Paul in Rome and we're gonna send, we're gonna task one of our own, one of our leaders, Epaphroditus, to carry that offering to Paul. Paul speaks of that in Philippians 4, verse 18 where he says to the Philippians, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. This was Epaphroditus's purpose in carrying that offering to Paul in Rome. I want you to look with me at the first verse that we're going to start with today. We're in uh, Philippians 2, and we're going to begin in verse 25, where Paul now will move on from Timothy and begin to call attention to this guy, Epaphroditus. Verse 25 says this. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my needs. As I look at verses 25 through 30, what I find is that there seems to me to be four descriptions of a faithful servant. And the the first one begins here in verse 25. And I think that Paul is describing how Epaphroditus was composed, what made him who he was. This is, in essence, Epaphroditus's resume for ministry. And that resume includes five things that Paul identifies in verse 25. The first thing Paul says is he says, Epaphroditus is my brother. My brother. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you my brother, Epaphroditus. That means Epaphroditus was a genuine brother in Christ to Paul. He wasn't a brother to Paul. Paul said he's my brother, which is a term of deep affection. I think Paul counted Epaphroditus his friend, someone he loved, someone he trusted and cared about. He is my brother second thing Paul says is he calls him my fellow worker, acknowledging Epaphroditus' service for God. He and Epaphroditus work shoulder to shoulder in the work of the Lord. They are plowing together in the same field. 
And there's a lesson for us in that. There's no greater work than for people of faith who serve side by side with one another in tough times, as Paul and Epaphroditus seem to be doing. Years ago, many years ago, I set a goal for our church, and that goal went like this. It's my desire that every member of Bethany Baptist Church, at least one time in their life, would go on a mission trip. And I remember I had guys who were not interested in going on missions trip saying to me, ah, Pastor, why would you make that a goal? And I said, well, that shows that you haven't done one. <laughs> but let me tell you why. God will teach you something as you go with a team of brothers or sisters and go serve some purpose of God somewhere else together. God does something in that context. He knits hearts together. He gives us a bond with one another, a shared experiencing and watching the things that God does. I would say to you, if you've never gone on a mission trip, you ought to try to figure out a way to do that before heaven comes. Because God will teach you something in that kind of experience. It doesn't have to be a trip to a foreign country. It can be a trip to the other side of town. But there's something that is learned when we walk and serve side by side with one another. Paul called Epaphroditus my fellow worker, and he meant every ounce of what that term might mean. Third thing is he says, he is my fellow soldier. Not only did Epaphroditus serve the Lord, but he did so at a, in a way that was difficult. It was hard and taxing. He faced opposition and danger. If you're going to go and serve with someone, serving with someone who's incarcerated in Rome by the Roman government would not be the most innocent kind of service you could do. There's something about allying yourself with someone who is behind bars, so to speak, that makes that ministry a little bit different, a little bit dangerous. But here's Epaphroditus aligning himself with an incarcerated prisoner of the government of Rome. They say that when things get tough, you see a person's true colors. When serving God is easy, Anybody can do that, but when it's hard, when it's dangerous and difficult, well, volunteers are tougher to come by in that situation. And that is where we find Epaphroditus serving alongside Paul. They were serving side by side as soldiers and warriors together, and Paul says, he's my fellow soldier. These first three attributions describe Epaphroditus' relationship to Paul. The last two describe his relationship to the Philippians. He says, he was your messenger. Epaphroditus carried an important message to Paul in hard times. He carried some amount, I think a generous financial offering on foot to Rome, 800 miles away in difficult times. It was dangerous to travel with a lot of money in your pocket in those days. And here's Epaphroditus saying, I can do that. He not only was sent on an official mission from the church, but that money also came along with it a great amount of trust from others. The Philippians entrusted Epaphroditus 
to carry their heart and their love to Paul by means of that financial offering. Epaphroditus represented the concern and love of the Philippians to Paul when he went to minister. And so Paul calls Epaphroditus in his letter to the Philippians, he's your messenger. And finally, he calls him your minister. He says that Epaphroditus was sent to me by you to minister to my needs. And that word minister carries the idea of doing priestly service like those who served at the temple and had responsibility for holy things. And that means that Epaphroditus' ministry to Paul was a holy thing in Paul's eyes. The same word is used of someone who served as a servant to a king or perhaps someone who served in public office and held a public trust, meaning that what Epaphroditus was doing for Paul was spiritual work. He was fulfilling a sacred calling before God, serving the Lord by serving Paul. It was the great Charles Spurgeon who said this, if God has called you to be his servant, why stoop to be a king? This calling to serve God was a high calling, and Epaphroditus stepped up to it with all that was in him. There All around us today is a whole world of needs, and God has called us to be servants, his servants, to the needs around us. So we start with how Epaphroditus was put together, was composed, what his resume was, and the composition of this man shows him to be a faithful servant. But I want to move on to verses 26 and 7, where we're going to see the heart of Epaphroditus, the heart of a faithful servant. In verse 26, it says this, for he has been longing for you all. Now again, this is Paul writing to the Philippians about Epaphroditus, for he has been longing for you all, meaning Epaphroditus's heart was yearning for the Philippians. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Which means that Epaphroditus, upon arrival in Rome, took ill. And we will see in this context, he almost dies from that illness. And word of that got back to the Philippians. And for Epaphroditus, knowing that his friends back home think he's about to die, caused him great concern. And Paul says he has been longing for you, and he has been distressed because of you. The word longing has the meaning of an intense desire, an intense connection. It's the kind of connection that some of us have for our sports teams that some of you, if you're a 49er fan, got dashed to pieces on the rocks last weekend. Right? Do you know what that hurt feels like? Or if you're a Bengals fan, you have now valid reasons to hate referees, right? And some of you think, Pastor Tim, you're only saying that because you're a lifelong Seahawks fan and you're jealous. And I'd say, yep, that's right. (laughs) But this concept of a deep longing, a yearning on a more 
personal note, I have been taking part in Coach Terry Williams' uh, month-long weight loss class uh, here at the church. We meet on Sunday nights. Terry has us writing down everything that we eat and counting how many calories it has in it and how much fiber and how many cups of water and how much exercise we get. And we have to show him our logs every Sunday night And I'm telling you that a month into a 1,200-calorie-a-day leaves you longing for something (laughs) called carbohydrates. (laughs) But we do it. Terry's class is affectionately known as purgatory, right, for those who are in it. Really hard. And uh, Terry's a tyrant, right, so we stick to it. I'm just kidding. Terry's the nicest guy on planet Earth. But it leaves you longing. Epaphroditus is possessed by a deep, intense longing, a desire for his church family back home because they're worried about him because they know he got sick and was on the brink of death. Paul has this same experience regarding the Philippians. In chapter one and verse eight of Philippians, Paul said, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. Same word, deep longing, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. And here's Epaphroditus, whose longing has driven him back to his home church, his family and friends, because they're worried about him being sick. And he wasn't just sick, he was deathly ill almost at the point where you step from life on earth to life in heaven. And here's Epaphroditus with the focus not on his illness, but he's worried about his friends back home and their concern for him. He seems to be more concerned about them than he was for himself. What a servant. What Epaphroditus felt for the Philippians church we ought to feel for one another today. For our work together is not done just with our hands, but it's done with our hearts because we learn to love one another. We need each other in the Christian life. Amen? We need others. And it's that soul-to-soul connection that we are called to forge with each other, and we do that by our work for Jesus together. And church, we ought to long for that place where we feel what others feel and that we share together our hearts with one another for God. And fortunately, unlike William Borden, God gave mercy to Epaphroditus and Epaphroditus doesn't die. Look at verse 27. Paul says, indeed, He was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul's heart and Epaphroditus's were so intertwined with each other that Paul said God's mercy on him was God's mercy on me. Because if God had taken him, my heart would have been dashed. I would have been decimated, and God showed mercy to me when he saved him. What an awesome picture of that soul-to-soul connection that these two had. 
And yet here we have this young man, Epaphroditus, sent on a mission to carry financial help to the Apostle Paul. And with that was not just the charge to carry the money. Here's what else the Philippians said to Epaphroditus. Carry our gift, show our love, and stay by Paul and see him through to the point of verdict when Caesar decides whether to put him to death or not. We want you to be our representatives, to represent us standing side by side with Paul to the very end. And when the verdict happens, then Epaphroditus come home and tell us what has happened. What did Caesar decide? It's an amazing calling that Epaphroditus seems to have stepped up to. I'll carry the offering. I'll stay by Paul's side. I will see how God, it'll be dangerous. It'll be dangerous during travel. It'll be dangerous for me to ally myself while he's in prison. And even worse, if he's put to death and they know that I'm with him, but I'm going to go because we needed someone and I'll volunteer. And so we see in verse 28, Paul says this to the Philippians, I am more eager to send him, Epaphroditus, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. In other words, Paul says to the Philippians this, him coming home isn't his decision, it's my decision. I'm sending him. You want to you wanna know who made this call? I did. Put that one on my account. I made the decision for him to go back. I did so so that you would rejoice in seeing him. He didn't die. God was merciful. And so that my anxiety might be relieved in him. And here's Epaphroditus again. He submitted to the will of the Philippians when he went on the mission. And then he goes to Paul, and Paul changes the plan and tells him to go home early. And I could see Epaphroditus saying, no, sir, I was sent to stick by you. I'm a good soldier. I'm going to finish the mission. I'm staying right here by your side till it's done. But he doesn't do that. Paul says, I've made the call. You're going back. And Epaphroditus seems to say, yes, sir. I can do that. I can serve alongside of you in that way. All of this shows us his vivid humility in receiving the charge from the Philippians and then in having the plans changed by Paul. And at each step, Epaphroditus seems to humbly be saying, yes, that's, yes, sir. You, you make the call and I'll do as you ask. Oh, that you and I would have that kind of attitude. It sounds a lot like William Borden's, who humbly submitted himself to God's decision for him. Church, this same kind of humility and obedience to God's will is what you and I must have in our relationship with God. Every Christian needs to place their plans for life under God's supremacy and give God the, the right to tell us what to do and where to go and when to go and how to go. We need to recognize that we serve at God's discretion and we ought to be willing to do whatever it is that he asks of him. We need to trust God even when we struggle with questions. 
What kind of questions? Have you ever asked this? Why, God? Have you ever asked, why now, God? Why there? Or, God, why did you let this happen? When I came to uh, Salem, fresh out of high school in 1984, I started studies at Western Baptist College, now Corbin University. And um, the president of the college at that time was Dr. John Ballio. When I came to Bethany in 1994, John Ballio and Betty were members here. And another former president, Tom and Davina Younger, were here. We had two former presidents who were in their older years and retired, and they were members of our church. But I'll, I'll never forget Dr. Ballio um, speaking in chapel as I was a student. And he said something that really connected with me. And, and Dr. Ballio said this. He said, I have in the living room of my mind a shelf upon which I place my great questions of God. And I thought, man, I, I, I get that. And he said, as I move through life, I will encounter things that I don't understand, things that are beyond me, things that I can't add up and, and, and make work. And when I do that, I put them up on the question shelf. And he said, my great desire will be that day that I step from earth into heaven, and one of the first things I want to do is meet with Jesus, my Savior, and have him answer those questions that I just couldn't comprehend. And Doc Balio said, but something I found as I moved through life is every now and then, I figure out the answer to one of those questions, and I can remove it from the question shelf in the living room of my mind. And I thought, wow. And then he said this, but by the time I remove one, I've usually added three or four others. The question shelf is always full. Let me ask you something this morning. Are you humble enough to let God call the plays in your life? Do you trust God enough to let him be your God? And when God does things that you don't understand, are you humble enough to hold that question before him with enough patience for him to answer you or for him to choose not to answer you? Because I would submit to you this morning that that kind of humility is the kind of humility that God's servant needs to have before him. I want to move on to uh, the last point in the text this morning. This is verses 29 and 30, which describe Epaphroditus' reward. Paul says to the Philippians, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me in other words Paul says to the Philippians I want you to do two things I want you to receive him back when he comes 
I think Paul is concerned that, they're, that when Epaphroditus arrives back home in Philippi, they're going to say, what are you doing here? Paul's verdict hasn't come. We sent you to represent us and stay by his side. Why did you leave your duty and come back? And Paul says, do not do that. I want you to receive him, and I want you to honor him. I think Paul says, don't cross-examine this guy. You don't need to investigate him deserting his post. On the contrary, be happy that he's back, and you need to honor him. That's what God expects us to do for choice servants. Jesus said in John 12, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Honor is the correct and God-prescribed response to faithful servants. They were to honor Epaphroditus because he had served well even to the point of death in this passage. John Calvin wrote about Epaphroditus this, he would rather be negligent as to health than be deficient as to duty. Therefore, this humble man should be highly regarded for the sacrificial work he was given, Paul is saying, not scrutinized. Give honor to whom honor is due, and Epaphroditus is due honor. Similarly, Paul comes to a point in life where he looked upon his previous accomplishments, and, and it's as if they lost their shine for him. He found a new love and a new passion and a new allegiance. I put this in your notes, but let me put it up here on the screen. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. It's as if Paul said, every merit badge I've ever earned, it doesn't matter anymore to me because I have a higher calling. I have a greater reward. I have a greater pursuit in life. And so Epaphroditus serves as this example. William Borden wrote in the flyleaf of his Bible, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. What about you? What about me? Do you hope to hear from the Lord one day, well done, good and faithful servant? If you do, you need to have the composition of a faithful servant, the resume. You need to have the heart and the humility of a faithful servant. And if you have those things, you will have the reward. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Make no mistake, when William Borden stepped into heaven, he heard, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be our story too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these two human examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who were held out before the Philippian church to show them what humble, obedient service really looked like. 
God, may we each look at our own hearts and ask our own selves, how am I doing at being a humble, obedient servant of the Lord? Lord, I pray that each of us would wrestle with these truths, that we would surrender our questions before you, that we would humbly obey when you give us opportunities to serve, that we would be courageous and think less of ourselves and more of you and others. Lord, knit our hearts together with one another as we serve shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters in the church family so that we too would know that deep longing and affection that you've designed to conduct our lives. And Lord, may we be encouraged by the call to humility and obedience and serving you. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our example. Amen.